Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and this is episode number 95. This is the Barbell Medicine Research Review for the month of April 2020. There are no April Fool's jokes in this podcast, at least not yet. Maybe some dad jokes, but uh, given the current pandemic, we decided to talk about muscular hypertrophy, particularly during periods or situations where training might not be uh, able to be optimized, quote unquote, which I know you hate that term. So I'm just trying to trigger you early. Yeah, good. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, silky voice you hear on the other end is the second most handsome doctor in the world. Dr. Austin Baraki, what's going on, man? Hey, man, just uh, locked down out here in Louisiana. Are you guys really locked down? Uh, it seems like the state of Texas may have may be locking things down, but I think there's going to be exceptions for like healthcare people. So I need to head back for another stint in the hospital soon. And uh, hopefully they let me through. <laughs> yeah. I, it's not like they're going to not let you in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there, there was, a, I just got an email this morning. There's a DCA waiver for like all medical training, licensure, whatever things needed for anybody in the state of California who's got a medical license. Wow. Yeah. yeah. The other, the other interesting thing is, uh, I think the, I think it was the ABIM, uh, American board of internal medicine that is like suspending their maintenance of certification requirements for now. And all of this stuff is just leading people to think like, how necessary was this stuff in the first place? You know, same, same <laughs> right. deal with all these like, uh, uh, you know, hurdles to licensure and stuff like that. Not to say there shouldn't be any, but you know, if, if, uh, they're able, if they feel comfortable doing away with them in this situation kind of makes you think so. <laughs> yeah. Well, you'd want to have a, ideally you'd want to have a, uh, some policies in place where you could mobilize a pool of potentially qualified physicians, um, quickly. So this might be people who are in the residency training, but are not yet, you know, board eligible or board certified or retired, uh, physicians, et cetera. If there's a physician shortage, although, my take right now is that I don't know that there's a physician shortage just yet. Uh, perhaps if a lot of them become infected with COVID-19, that might change. Sure. And then yeah. I'll have to dust off the old scrubs and uh, and head in. It's definitely sure. variable by location. I mean, I've been seeing reports like in New York, for example, of people being pulled from their specialty to do floor work, for example, to spare people you know, who are more critically ca critical care capable to handle that stuff. Um, you know, urologists and ophthalmologists and people like that who are not used to doing the, the general medicine side of things getting pulled into those roles. But um, yeah. who knows? I think it's just going to escalate. What do you think the, just to get you in trouble, I, assuming that other clinicians actually listen to this, what, what specialty do you think would be the least qualified to work the floor after having completed their residency and and uh, perhaps fellowship training? Oh, boy. Um, well, I think that all the medical subspecialties are probably going to be fine. So we'd have to limit it to, to ones outside of that. Um, obviously, uh, I mean, I think in some sense... The, there's pretty substantial differences between peds, uh, pediatric stuff and, and like critical care of adults, but at the same time, they're medically trained as well. Um, I don't know, maybe like a diagnostic radiology or a path or um, uh, radiation oncology. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I was thinking like peds ortho, perhaps, <laughs> yeah. or, or like, or like, uh, like interventional, uh, rads or something. Not to, cause look, these people are all much smarter than I am. Yeah. I, 
the, just but the people just, for the people furthest removed. Yeah. I mean, like I think when, ophthalmology is probably the furthest removed, to be honest. Yeah, Dr. <laughs> oh, was it Glomaflocken or whatever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look, if you're on the Twitters, you gotta follow this guy. It's, he he's he's funny dude. But yeah, yeah I outpatient I'll, private practice opto. There we go. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, concierge opto. Uh, <laughs> or maybe or or psych. Like we're, we're, what are we doing here? We we just missed this whole thing. Yeah, yeah. So maybe just, you know, outpatient cash psych. Mm-hmm. Again, no offense to these folks. Again, you guys are all smarter than I am. Uh, just the further you are removed from doing this stuff, the least, the less that people should want you, you know, manning their vent. So, um, anyway, we'll see what happens, but onto the reason why we're on this, do this podcast, uh, Barbara medicine research review talking about hypertrophy. Uh, Hey, look, if you're just listening to this for the first time and maybe you just stumbled across Barbell medicine because all of our, you know, paid per click advertising is paying off. And you want to go over and check out the full edition. Uh, you want to read the full text. Um, you can go over to barbellmedicine.com, go to the research review. You can get half off your first month by using the code research. And if you're still on the fence and you want to like check this out, you can download the January uh, edition from 2020 or and 2019, both for free. So you get a little sample and then uh, you know try it on for size. It's a good way to stay up to date on all the latest health and fitness information and as uh, kind of looked at through a clinical lens. So we're the only sort of research review that's written to the public um, through a clinical lens uh, versus just like, you know, talking about exercise science or something. So that's our unique sort of uh, uh, spiel, our pitch. Let's uh, let's get into this. So Austin, you started, uh, you titled this piece that you wrote detraining in quarantine what do <laughs> yeah. and, and i just want to i want to hear you actually pronounce the author's name for this paper but you so you can read the paper name that you reviewed and then the author's name uh, because it'll bring me great joy yeah i have no idea to be honest uh, it's the title's the effect of resistance training detraining and retraining on muscle strength and power myofiber size satellite cells and myonuclei in older men by Blockio. At Al, <laughs> yeah, he might be French. Yeah, I did, it be. just reminds me of the uh, uh, Key and Peel like skits where he's the teacher and he's like yeah. Balake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this paper is uh, from the um, journal Experimental Gerontology, and it's uh, May twenty twenty, so it's actually from the future. Oh wow, this yeah. really is like how <laughs> is it from May twenty twenty? Yeah, it's open access if people want to uh, want to take a look at the full text. It's openly available too, so that's cool. Nice. All right. So we're looking at the effect of not only what exercise has on the individual's performance, uh, but then also what happens when you stop training uh, and then start retraining. So take us through the sort of study design here um, and kind of include some of the outcomes they were looking at. Yeah. The, the background basically is that, you know, we know that training improves a bunch of different physical parameters. Uh, but interestingly, in some of the, we have a, a reasonably good idea as far as how that happens, like the mechanisms of say muscle hypertrophy, strength improvement, things like that. They happen through a whole variety of different mechanisms. The detraining side of things, we have some of an understanding of, probably not quite as good as the the, in, the improvement, the hypertrophy side, for example. Um, but what's been observed in a lot of detraining data sets and studies is that when people detrain, they do tend to lose muscle mass, but what happens with strength doesn't seem to occur in proportion. So you tend to uh, maintain more strength than you would expect for a given degree of loss in muscle mass. And this is 
If you were under the simplistic understanding that, you know, there's a perfect one-to-one relationship between muscle mass and and strength, then that might surprise you. But we know that this is a force production is a complicated process. There's neural mechanisms, structural mechanisms, a whole bunch of other things involved in these adaptations. And so it's not a perfect one-to-one deal. And so there's been a lot of discussion, debate, research, trying to figure out what sorts of things uh, can explain this uh, these these processes or these observations in detraining. Furthermore, when people who are undergo detraining, they then undergo retraining. We tend to see that they have what seems to be a bit of a more robust retraining response. Um, they might regain back some of their prior strength and or muscularity, maybe a little bit quicker than. Uh, they did the first time through their uh, training uh, uh, from baseline. Um, And so they might reach their prior levels a little quicker and then kind of surpass them from there. And similarly, we're like, okay, why does this happen? What lays the groundwork for somebody to have this um, seemingly a bit more robust training response, maybe the second time around? So that's kind of what they were hoping to try to figure out in this study. So they had, yeah, go ahead. I assume everybody at home or everybody listening to this is just screaming, well, hopefully you're at home if you're listening to this <laughs> currently. Uh, they're screaming, muscle memory, muscle memory. That's what he's talking about. It's muscle memory, uh, which we'll get to. But before we <laughs> get into this retraining effect, uh, let's. Uh, you want to go through some of the kind of physiological changes that occur at the muscle. Because I, 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 this, this study actually kind of investigates what's going on at like the histological level of the actual muscle tissue. So like what sort of changes underlie an increase in muscular hypertrophy uh, uh, that we typically associate with increased strength potential? Yeah. So from with, you know, if we're going to look purely at the muscle size component of kind of contributions to ultimate strength performance, then uh, the increases in muscle size that we might look at um, are going to be driven. You know, we, we tend to break this down into, you know, an increase in, in skeletal muscle protein, um, and, and this begins, this whole process that we talk about with muscle protein synthesis starts with the expression of genes, gene expression. You know, people, people who might think back to their high school biology might remember that quote unquote central dogma, that idea of you take DNA, you transcribe it into RNA, and then you translate it into protein. Well, the DNA it's sitting in your nuclei of your muscle cells is what needs to be transcribed. And so that's the first kind of process here. Um, furthermore, you need to have the machinery available to do that translation. That's what the, the little structures in your cells called ribosomes, take that RNA and turn it into protein. So you need to have plenty of myonuclei that contain the DNA. You want to have plenty of ribosomes available to translate those transcripts into new muscle protein. And then outside of that, there's even more interesting things like changes in the way your genes are expressed, whether they're turned on or turned off. That has, that's something called epigenetics that can influence, you know, how, how you might respond to training. And, uh, and then the only, the other, uh, components that were looked at here were satellite cells. And these are basically like stem cells of the muscle stem cells, meaning cells that then can uh, regenerate and they can contribute to muscle repair regeneration. And they actually end up fusing with muscle cells to to kind of deliver new nuclei to the cell. And so the benefit of that is you have more nuclei in your muscle cell means more DNA available to transcribe and turn into protein. So there's all sorts of different mechanisms kind of coming at this from different ways. 
ultimately to increase, uh, you know, uh, protein synthesis at the level of the muscle that then can contribute to increases in size. And again, this is just one piece of a bigger complex system that and then ends up resulting in improvements in force production because there's, you know, various hormonal factors, neurological things, connective tissue adaptation, relationships between muscle, tendon, bone, things like that, that, that result in uh, the ultimate manifestation of, say, an increase in strength performance, for example. Yep. So during the periods where somebody's actually resistance training, they're getting it in, in the gym, they're generating these neurological and structural, uh, changes at the level of muscle, the neuromuscular junction is how the nerve connects to the muscle. These genetic and epigenetic changes all are culminating to produce an increase in muscular strength and muscular size. All right. That's great. That's what's happening when you're actually training. But what happens when you stop training, or in this case, they call it detraining? Yeah, that's what people have been trying to figure out, as and, and this study included, trying to figure out. In, in other words, they wanted to see how much of those adaptations are reversed. For example, if you gain a whole bunch of myonuclei, do they disappear by the during the detraining period? Um, or satellite cell function concentration, how does that change with training and detraining? And so that's kind of what they wanted to look at is... Um, whether, say, an increase in myonuclei persists over over a, a period of training and whether that has anything to do with the retraining effect that we see, you know, afterwards when you come back to training again. Um, so, so they had a total of 40 uh, subjects in this study. Um, they split them uh, a little asymmetrically. They had 30 in the training group and 10 in the control group, which I kind of liked um, uh, for the purposes of this, this study, meaning we had more subjects who were training um, to, to get uh, data off of. And they had them trained for the initial uh, program was 12 weeks long. They had baseline measurements of strength and, and uh, some other kind of power measurements using dynamometry, which is a, which is a legit method to assess those, uh, those uh, metrics. And interestingly, which is uncommon for a lot of these studies is they actually did muscle biopsies. They went in and they took a piece of the muscle at periodically throughout the study. They just stabbed these people. Yep. Stabbed them in the leg uh, and took a piece of muscle to look at under microscope. The thing that wasn't as great is that they did this in a subset of their subjects. They didn't stab all of their subjects, just a tiny mm -hmm. subset, which ended up being a pretty significant limitation as far as, excuse me, as far as what they were able to show over the course of the trial. But they had these people train for 12 weeks, um, they started out, uh, the, the program was reasonable. They were doing, you know, pressing movements, uh, with the upper body and leg press and, and a few other, you know, not strictly a, a barbell based or powerlifting type program, but they were started out training around 65% of their one RM for fairly high rep sets around 15 or so, and progressed up to around 80 or so percent of their one RM of course, standard caveats and limitations apply for these sorts of studies with one RM testing, um, in relatively untrained uh, uh, subjects and then kind of progressing them that way, but not a, not a totally unreasonable way to train. And we would expect to see a decent training response from these sorts of things in this kind of a, a subject uh, population. And so they trained them for the first 12 weeks, saw uh, strength improvements, saw um, uh, on their uh, 1RM leg press, and then they subjected them to a subsequent 12-week detraining uh, period. And of course, during that detraining period, as you would expect, they saw some declines in their in their strength performance. And then in the third stage, they did another 12-week training program, same as the first, with loads adjusted based on where they're, where they're at at that time. And they saw a more robust 
training improvement in their strength. They regained their prior strength in eight weeks rather than 12, and they kept improving beyond that point. So that that side of things is relatively um, uh, not novel. It's kind of what you would expect based on the other existing uh, uh, kind of evidence we have on this topic. What they were more wanting to look at is, okay, what's happening in the muscles, the structural level, things like that. Uh, with the myonuclei and the satellite cells and things like that. And this is where kind of some of those limitations came into play because they biopsied six people in the exercise group and three in the control group to kind of see what sort of measurement error might there be or or what would we expect to happen in people who aren't necessarily exercising to to compare with the exercising group. And I think um, as a result of that relatively small uh, size of, uh, of people who were either willing to undergo biopsy or that they're able to, to biopsy over the course of this study, it limited how much um, of a change they were able to detect in terms of things like muscle fiber size, cross-sectional area, fiber typing, um, uh, the myonuclear uh, changes, the satellite cell changes. And I go into this in much more detail in the full, in the full article, but uh, some of these limitations kind of uh, left them unable to draw really confident conclusions as far as what's happening in the muscle structure. Um, I think there's something that there likely are changes going on there uh, throughout this period, but I think that you know maybe due to some of the study design aspects here, we're unable to uh, uh, unable to detect some of those changes for a ver- for again for a variety of reasons that I get into in the paper. Um, but that's ultimately kind of what they were looking at and how they went about things in this in this study. So a reasonable study design just would prefer it to be uh, uh, bigger as far, particularly as far as how many people were biopsied would have been yeah. most helpful. Yeah, muscle biopsies are no joke. Have you ever have you ever had one? Absolutely not. <laughs> yes. So these are not great. Like when I was in uh, when I was an undergrad, you could get extra credit by participating in you know random exercise science studies, and sometimes they'd want to stab your leg. To basically, it's a syringe-looking thing that with a relatively large bore that you know pulls out a sliver of muscle, and then they put it under a microscope and stain it, and you know do all sorts of stuff to kind of look like, hey, what changed? In any yeah. case, it's uh, unpleasant, yeah, uh, to say yeah. the least. So I can get why they didn't do it, uh, sure. but on the, at the <laughs> same, by the same token, you'd want to see. It would have been nice to have 30 samples and have uh, be able to draw a little bit more confident conclusions. Yeah. But um, the, like, look, if you're listening to this at home and you're like, wow, Baraki just went ham on all of this muscle physiology, particularly from the uh, histological standpoint, you know, like molecular level, like what's going on, like, you know, at the micro level, uh, you need to read this paper if you're at all interested in this stuff, because this is fascinating. Like you're talking about myonuclear domains, satellite cells, muscle protein synthesis, like what's really happening. And I think some people like they hear about these concepts, but they don't really understand them because you do have to go deeper into the, down the rabbit hole to really get a sense of like, this is what's actually happening. So here's, you know, what this process actually entails. This look, it's only 11 pages. Yeah, I had to pull, I pulled a lot of uh, other stuff in to to put this paper in context. And it kind of drew on, um, to be honest, it drew on like several years worth of reading, I think. So so people may remember, I gave a lecture um, in the past with some of our former colleagues uh, at a conference on muscle signaling mechanisms and hypertrophy and things like that. And all the way going back to then, I mean, I cite some of the papers I cited then here. Um, But definitely, you know, some of the takeaways that I think are most important for people is it's like, yeah, it's going to be expected that you're going that you may if if you were to undergo complete detraining, 
which is not the case for most of our audience. But let's say you were to undergo complete detraining, you're likely to lose some degree of, of muscle mass, you, you'll probably lose a bit of strength, um, although not as much as you would expect. So if you say you lost 20% of muscle mass, you're not going to lose 20% of strength, it might be 5% It's gonna be less than you would expect for that. And you'll respond more robustly upon your return to training. Furthermore, we have evidence that to the extent that you are able to train, even if it's moderate or relatively low intensity, even if it's a bit lower volume, you can actually mitigate that decline uh, to a reasonable extent. Um, one interesting paper that I cited in the kind of contextualization here from Bickel in, in 2011, they had 70 adults that they uh, that they trained, both young and old, for 16 weeks, and then they dropped them to either a third or a ninth of their initial training volume. And they were actually did a reasonably good job with that drop in training volume temporarily maintaining their strength adaptations. Although the older folks in the study who dropped down to like a ninth of their training volume definitely lost muscle size, which is not surprising, you know, given the differences in anabolic sensitivity and, and the dose responses that you need to uh, to build muscle with, uh, with respect to training volume. So, you know, that's kind of where we're coming from with our, with our recommendations here is that if you undergo complete detraining during this period of time, it's not the end of the world to the extent that you're going to be able to get back to training uh, in a reasonable time frame. but that's re probably not the case for most people as we've discussed with, uh, and we will discuss in your research review, um, uh, that you can mitigate that decline, uh, uh, quite a bit, uh, particularly if you're able to get, you know, reasonable full body training in, get a decent, uh, or fairly high dose of training volume. in. Uh, you could probably do a lot more than you think on that front, uh, and, and set yourself up well for when you're able to return to normal training. So you don't end up with, uh, you know, crippling soreness right off the bat. If you were just <laughs> sitting doing nothing for a few months. <laughs> right. And, and a lot of this stuff underpins our, our recommendations for folks why they should get started training anyway. So, so imagine you have somebody who's been training resistance training for years and they all of a sudden have a, an emergency surgery, you know, that put, takes them out for months or an a illness that takes them out for months, or in this case, COVID a pandemic <laughs> that takes them out for months. Yeah. Well, not only have you created this large phys physiological reserve that has like tons of other benef health benefits, right? But just from a pure muscle mass and muscle function standpoint, you've given yourself this large base that will, you know, just like your 401k slowly go down over time <laughs> as yeah. you, you know, have to dip into it. Um, but ultimately gives you some wiggle room to sort of tolerate the stress of surgery or complication from surgery or pandemic or whatever. In any case, we expect that folks, even if they couldn't train during this pandemic, uh, they'll likely bounce back and, and be able to surpass um, where they were before in much faster, uh, a much sort of faster time, time course than they, it took to generate it. And the most interesting thing, <laughs> this paper is from May of 2020, you said? Yeah, <laughs> maybe they just did it on COVID patients. They're just predicting like this is actually we're in a computer simulation and right, they right. just, <laughs> yeah, this is cool. So you guys need to read this again. I'm not going to shill for our research review anymore, but I think this stuff is fascinating. And if you're at all interested in like how we get the gains that we're, we're seeking, like you got to read this paper because it's, uh, it's excellent. And uh, Austin just effectively saved you a year and a half worth of like self-directed <laughs> learning. Seriously, because I remember learning about myonuclear domain for the yeah. first time in like 2014 or 15. And like, you got to go way down the rabbit hole to sort yeah. of make sense of it. Sure. So, all right, we get to flip the script. Austin, cool. excellent review. Now you've graduated most handsome doctor in North America. 
I lost a position. I'm still on the podium though, so I feel okay. Okay. All right. What about you then? What did you decide to tackle this month? I mean, so yeah, we had a push from the internets to come up with this like at home training template, which we did. Um, to because people like are like hey, we're gonna have to train at home. Every my whole country's on lockdown. All the gyms are closed, etc. Like what do? And we're like, all right, well, <laughs> you know, the general advice to just hey, stay active, do some body weight stuff, try to find an appropriate modification or variation that you know puts enough gives you enough stimulus. That's just that's not actionable enough for people to actually implement, right? You can just do all sorts of weird stuff and and not necessarily be doing the right thing. So we came up with this at home training template, and so in the course of doing that, um, you know as I am want to do, I end up dipping into the research a little bit to see like, what does it actually say about body weight based training or similar variations and uh, stuff that we care about, like muscular hypertrophy and muscular strength. So I actually found this paper from 2018 by Katarski et al. They're from uh, North Dakota. And uh, the title of the paper is the effect of progressive calisthenic push-up training on muscular strength and thickness, Uh, thickness in this case being a measure of muscular hypertrophy. So effectively what they did is they took 25 dudes. um, I think the uh, average age was like 23. They were between 18 and 45 years old, uh, all at North Dakota State University. And they split them into two groups. Group one got to do push-ups. And group two got to do bench press. And the idea was let's, and they're all going to train three times a week. They're going to do three sets of six uh, each time. And then at the beginning and end, we're going to test their one RM bench press strength and also like how good they are at pushups. But the the most novel thing that I'd not seen before I came across this paper, although intuitively it kind of makes sense and it's reflected in our at-home template, which also there's a free version. You can check that out, how to exercise at home. Um is how like using body weight variations where the leverages are changed in order to increase the sort of intensity or the load you're actually placing on the muscles you're trying to to train. So they had this sort of 10 step or 10 level push-up sort of scale. So level one being the easiest, level 10 being the hardest. Level one was a push-up against a wall. So you're almost standing straight up and down. Yeah. Uh, you're at arm's length from the wall and you're and you do push-ups. And um, so when they were testing these folks initially to see like how, where they would start their push-up progression, they ran them through this whole scale. So the level one was push-up against the wall. They did three sets of six. And once they could complete, if they could complete that, they moved to the next one, which is an incline push-up. So basically push-up with their hands on a hot, an elevated surface, about two feet off the ground. A third one was a kneeling push-up. Um, and for the listeners at home, there's actually some evidence suggesting that a kneeling push-up is about 40-ish, 45% of your body weight. That's how much load you're actually placing on the shoulder girdle. So anyway, that was level three. If they could do three sets of six, they kept graduating, graduating. Level five right in the middle is a full push-up, just regular push-up. And then all the way at the top was a one-arm push-up, like no joke, one-arm push-up. And there's some variations, obviously, between the full push-up and the one-arm push-up that kind of gets you up to that level. So the idea was, let's find a progression level that's kind of challenging for these folks right now, a push-up variation, and we'll compare that to a bench press loading scheme that's challenging for them right now as well. And so what they did after testing these these guys 1RM, they basically started them out at three sets of six at 75% of their 1RM. And so similarly in the push-up group, they start them out with three sets of six at whatever level on this push-up progression uh, scale they, they, they started at. So everybody started at either a full push-up or a close grip push-up. What they try to do for progression, they either tried to add, uh, they tried to add a single rep every session. So three sets of six on session one, 
48 hours later, three sets of seven, 48 hours later, three sets of eight. And once they could do that in the push-up group, they would go up a level on the progression. And on the bench press, they would just add 10 pounds and go back down to three sets of six. That's how they ran this progression. In any case, they did this for four weeks, 12 total training sessions, and they measured uh, a few different outcomes. Outcome one was one RM bench press strength. Outcome two was a, a exercise called a medicine ball shot put effectively from a from a seated position. You basically just launch a medicine ball from chest level. It's a measure of power, which is uh, force uh, high velocity force production. And then the third uh, measure was hypertrophy. They basically stuck an ultrasound on these guys' pecs and said, hey, how thick did you get? <laughs> In any case, what we see here at the end of four weeks was that there were no differences between the bench press group and the push-up group with respect to 1RM bench press performance. They both improved by about five kilos, that similar level of improvement. Uh, neither of them actually improved the medicine ball shot put test, which is, was exactly what we'd expect since that's high velocity force production. They didn't actually do any high velocity force production training. And then with hypertrophy, there was no difference um, either uh, between the two groups. And actually, they didn't see a statistically significant improvement, even though they did increase a little bit. It just wasn't statistically significant, which is actually also what we'd expect because it's only a four-week study. Uh, in general, most of the data right now in hypertrophy suggests you have to run a longer study to sort of be able to accurately measure changes in hypertrophy. And most of the strength changes that occur early on in a program that might indicate to you that somebody's getting more jacked or gaining more muscle uh, tends to be uh, neurological adaptations. And so you actually, most of the studies on hypertrophy where they're directly measuring stuff, so they're doing muscle biopsies, suggest that muscular hypertrophy doesn't really occur to a substantial amount until after week four, five, but that, you know, there's a lot of individual variation. So in any case, I, I dive into like, how do people, how do, what happens in order to drive hypertrophy? I cover all of that. I cover all that for strength. So we're really going, you know, through these big programming concepts here. But I thought this thing was fascinating just as far as like, if you asked a bunch of coaches, hey, are people likely to be able to improve their bench press performance, one RM bench press performance by doing pushups? I, I think you'd probably get a 10 out of 10 response saying no. Just because you don't think that you can figure out a variation or you're not thinking about variations for the push-up that similarly add intensity without being able to add actual weight. But this sort of push-up progression chart, you know, making the exercise harder uh, shows that you can do that. Uh, a couple problems, obviously. One, these folks only trained for like two, to, only had a training history of like two to six months. So nobody in here has like a, you know, a 400 pound bench press. We don't, we don't I don't know that that's going to work. Uh, also like their one RM bench press was similar to their body weight. Um, and so from a push up, a regular push up from your, from your toes, um, is about 65% of your body weight, 65, 69, something like that percent of your body weight, meaning that, uh, they were probably the folks who were bench pressing, the folks who were doing push ups were actually probably being exposed to similar amounts of load, quote unquote. So hard to, you know, I'd like to see this done with heavier lifters, not only heavier body weight, but also folks with heavier bench presses. And then I'd like to see a longer study done from the hypertrophy standpoint. Although there is some data showing that pushups done to near failure, even from the knees, increase hypertrophy and are the same as bench press induced hypertrophy. So it's like, I don't know. 
Yeah, we know you. We know you can achieve hypertrophy in a ton of different ways across a ton of different loads if you're getting sufficient recruitment of of the the target kind of areas. Um, whereas strength involves a ton more skill and specificity and things like that. So I, yeah, like you said, if there if there were 200 kilo benchers, then I wouldn't expect them to be you know uh, uh, gaining many kilos on their bench press from that just due to the lack of uh, uh, kind of top end specificity force production necessary between the two tasks but hypertrophy yeah i mean i i I can buy that you can get hypertrophy across a ton of different things i i particularly liked what you mentioned with the the progression scheme that they had in this study that was pretty interesting and and it seems relatively novel for for one of these kind of studies where they were not it was not a everybody in this group regardless is going to do the same uh, uh movement if it's you know near impossible for some and super easy for others rather kind of targeting uh, the exercise difficulty for where they were at. Um, the the other things, like you mentioned, with the hypertrophy outcomes. I mean, a four week study measuring hypertrophy with an ultrasound is kind of kind of dumb, in my opinion, with a small with a small sample sure. size. So so that stuff is less interesting in, uh, to me. But I think definitely this progression scheme that they had set up is is pretty cool. Yeah. So if you're a subscriber, you'll see the push up progression chart. If you have academic access to the paper, you can check it out too. But what you can't see is what Austin and I are about to do right now, this free response thing. And I know that Austin loves me putting him on the spot. <laughs> so uh, I just thought about this, you know, this push up progression chart, we'll say that that is like a, a, you know, analogous to the bench press. Can we come up with something for the squat using, you know, body weight exercises. So like we'll go through like a one through 10 from easiest to hardest. All right. So let's say the one easiest is like unassisted half squat to or a something. chair, to, to a high box or to a chair or something. A high like chair, that. chair with chair plus telephone books. Yeah. <laughs> sure. If those still exist, I actually don't know if telephone books still exist. Seems like a terrible <laughs> use of like resources, but, um, all right. And then maybe after that, it's, uh, a squat to a, you know, a box at parallel or chair at parallel. And then third is like a body weight squat. And then, uh, where would you would go after that? It would have to be something like a, a, a deeper squat or something like that. Yeah. It's, or, it, there's going to be either like we've talked about with the, with the at home template going to be variations based on range of motion is, is definitely one. So it could go, yep. could go deeper. Other ways to make it more difficult would be making it unilateral, for example. So a single leg squat, split, either split, two split squat, split squat, rear foot elevated split squat, something like that. Or, or yeah. Yeah. So it'd probably go to like a split squat then, uh, so pr- probably something that's a little easier than a regular split squat. Cause that's like a pretty big step. And then from there, like a Bulgarian split squat with the rear foot's elevated. And then from there, you'd have to have something between there and a pistol squat. So it'd maybe be like a pistol ass- to a box or something. Yeah, exactly. Or assisted pistol or something like that. Yeah. And then it's like a pistol to, you know, parallel or something else. And then the last, the final one is a pistol. Like all the way, on. all the way down. ATG. Yeah, maybe it's a, <laughs> yeah, maybe it's a pistol. And then the last, maybe even the one above that's like a explosive pistol where you like, you know, jump at the top or something. Yeah. But I, it wouldn't surprise me if somebody did that study with that sort of progression and saw that that produced similar hypertrophy outcomes to the barbell back squat or a leg press provided you ran the study for long enough, you were able to directly measure this stuff and enough volume was being done. Because effectively, if you're getting the muscle anywhere close to failure, so within, you know, five, six reps of failure and you're doing enough volume, you're going to drive hypertrophy. You're, it's got to be fine. 
Um, and then for those who are not terribly well-trained, like, you know, you've been lifting weights for like a year or something like that. I think you might even actually see an improvement on your squat, you know, in a short term. But if you're Austin and you're squatting 600 plus, less likely because you just need, you're requiring more specific adaptations to drive that top end performance. But if you're, you know, if you're not that, that far along, it wouldn't surprise me that you saw an improvement there either. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Sick. That's been Austin and I for the Barbell Medicine Research Review, April 2020. Let's hear from Michael and Derek. My name is Derek Miles. I am a physical therapist at Stanford Children's Health in the Sports and Ortho Rehab Department. I'm also a member of the pain and rehab team for Barbell Medicine. Perfect. Derek, we're back for the April edition of the Barbell Medicine Research Review 2020. Uh, this is not an April fool's joke, by the way, you're talking about symmetry this month. Uh, how did you come to this and like, why? (laughs) Because I think most people would probably figure that you're trolling them. Well, it is that debate that we see just incessantly online of when symmetry matters and it tends to be dichotomized into it does or it doesn't when it's much more of a spectrum. There certainly are instances where there is good support in the literature that we need to address some asymmetries, especially after an injury. No, you just ignore it. That's right, because pain's all in your head. That's the thing. Well, if you just keep squatting, of course, it'll go away. Sure, so, yeah. Just net, You don't have to do anything but just squat, uh, bench press, and deadlift, and you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so this was, is this an actual study, or is this more of a, a scoping review, or, or what did you actually do this month? It was a scoping review, and there are some instances in which that we can say with a very high degree of certainty that symmetry matters when coming back from an injury, especially after a muscle injury, like a hamstring injury or an adductor injury, or after a surgical reconstruction, like if you tore an adductor, or the one that has the most literature behind it is after ACL reconstruction, where quadricep index tends to be a huge determining factor in clearance for return to sport or should be. Yeah, I know we talked about the quadriceps index and I think a hamstring index, like asymmetry index before. Um, All right, let's back up though to take the people, the listeners at home through this. What do you actually mean when you say, uh, like, are we talking about a muscular imbalance, quote unquote, or how are you actually going to like describe this um, to either a patient or, uh, or somebody who's curious about it? Well, so that's a phenomenal question because that's what the piece really got into in the beginning was how we do measure this. And a lot of times it's very nebulous. Uh, The gold standard being a manual muscle test as far as how it's taught in typical MSK rehab or musculoskeletal rehab or orthopedics. And it's just a horrendous way to try and measure quadricep strength or hamstring strength because it's a zero to five scale where five out of five is classified as can resist against strong pressure. But we need to determine what the hell strong pressure is if we're going to have that discussion. Right. Um, that's, just, that's the same thing we learned in like clinical, like our, our uh, physical exam, you know, and then you'd, you'd be five and then four plus four, four minus, you know, all sorts of, you know, varying degrees of like, of a functionality, but a five is still a five, you know? And it's like, what, what if you have somebody who's, does that capture anybody with an asymmetry? And, and the answer to that is probably no, which I feel like you're about to tell us. 
Yeah, well, I think the good analogy there is if I asked you to measure distance and gave you a ruler and then told you you could only use the ruler one time. So if it's beyond a meter long, it's just a meter to you. And, you know, everything below that, there is some gradation. But when we're talking about individuals with maximal force production, such as a sprinter jumping or powerlifting, then just calling something strong enough to resist against is kind of farcical. And on top of that, if you think about the way we test a quadricep is having someone sit on the edge of the table and kick out into the commission's hand. Now, there are measures that we talk about in the piece uh, using different forms of dynamometry that give you a much more quantitative, accurate measure. And it's not uncommon to have, you know, I'm sure if we did this test on you, you would be somewhere in the 200 pound plus range without much issue. And no clinician is going to put 200 pounds of force through someone's quadricep or th through their knee when they're checking for knee extension. So it's, right. it's hard to determine what actually is an asymmetry or if we want to use the word an imbalance out of it, because even if you kicked out 250 pounds on one leg and 180 pounds on the other, well, that's a pretty big deficit, but that's never going to show up through a manual muscle test. So are you talking, I guess, again, just to clarify, you're saying an asymmetry or imbalance from side to side, not necessarily front to back. So we're not talking about like a hamstrings to quadricep index. We're talking about a right side to left side. That's, that's what we're talking about. Um, yes, correct. The, gotcha. the hamstrings to quadricep ratio just doesn't have a lot of weight behind it. It's kind of a antiquated way that people used to frame what they consider deficits through. But the problem is contingent upon the sport you're playing and the like sport you've adapted to, you're going to have different indexes along the yeah. way. Yeah. And also to be clear, like most people should not have the same strength in their quadriceps as they do in their hamstrings. They should be much stronger in the quadriceps just due to the amount of actual muscle tissue that's much greater in the quadriceps. It's due to the angle of penation. The muscle fibers are running at an angle. So you stack more muscle fibers per cubic inch than you do in the vertically running hamstrings. But, you know, just as you alluded to, different sports will produce different adaptations, will have different norms. But I imagine that gets pretty messy in the research field. So you guys just stick to doing this side to side sort of analysis. But you're not using manual muscle testing in your clinic. You guys are using what, like a. You have like a leg curl machine or something or a leg extension machine? Well, that's actually a decent way to get it as a proxy if you don't have dynamometry. But uh, typically the gold standards and what we use at uh, LPCH is a handheld dynamometer and a pole dynamometer. And a pole dynamometer is basically, you can almost think of it like a fish scale is what it looks like. So the harder you pull on it, it'll give you an actual measurement. And there you can have someone produce maximal force in an isometric fashion and compare side to side. Um, what you see a lot in the literature is actually isokinetic testing, where it's a large machine that no matter how hard you kick against it, it's going to move at a certain speed, whether it be 60 degrees per second, 180 degrees per second, 300 degrees per second. And there you do get um, very accurate limb symmetry indexes. And you can even set those to whether you want concentric or eccentric for your measurements. Gotcha. So you're able to assess this. Is there a specific cutoff between like, or difference that actually you think is relatively meaningful or is it always context specific? 
So in the literature there, it, it's contingent upon the injury. And what you see out of it when we're talking about muscle injuries is you want to shoot for at least 85%. Um, any lower than that and your risk of re-injury starts going up by orders of magnitude. And so it, it's just a good cutoff criteria. I think there are two papers that showed if you're less than 85%, one had you at 2.4 times more likely to get injured and the other one was over three times more likely to get injured. And so there, I would argue there needs to be a good quantitative assessment of strength side to side. And it makes sense from even a, a functional standpoint, just because if your sport is predicated upon you operating at absolute 100% force and you're returning to sport and not able to generate that prior, um, you could see how there may be a deficit between what you're trying to do and what you're adapted to do at that point. Got it. So when, I guess, if any, do you ever assess this in somebody who doesn't have an injury? I mean, I guess you're not seeing them because why would they come to the physical therapist's office? But like, I mean, let's say somebody had access to a dynamometer and they're just screwing around on their own. Like, would is this even something they should care about if they don't, if they don't have a, an acute injury? I would argue no, um, unless there's a history of surgery, especially when it comes to ACL reconstruction. There are some studies that show seven to 10 years out, there still is a significant deficit side to side. Now that's a, a bit of a different topic because you can make the case that that's a chicken or egg was a crappy rehab or just the result of the surgery. Um, and I would probably argue the former of that, but an athlete just walking into clinic or walking into a gym, there's no need to assess this. And this is part of the point out of it as well is when you start seeing an athlete perform a movement, all of us as coaches start kind of picking it apart and looking for technical things we want to work on. This isn't good nor bad. It's rather just things we want to work to improve in the athlete. Now, if you saw someone who had a big shift side to side, that doesn't inherently mean that's bad by any stretch. It may lead me to want to look at it or at least ask some questions. But as far as it's stopping me from doing anything that the athlete should be doing, no, we're, we're going to train. And that's kind of the big take home out of this. I actually uh, presented this at the end through a case study of myself where uh, after a lumbar disc herniation with residual motor weakness. So like basically, you know, we have good evidence saying that disc herniations aren't exactly a great correlate of having symptoms and they do heal. But if you have that and an individual has myotomal weakness, so weakness in a specific muscle pattern and dermatomal changes in sensation, you can say with a higher likelihood, it might be that uh, disc causing some issues. In this instance, that's how it presented. So prior to injury, I had been on an isokinetic dynamometer and tested myself because I'm a sadist and got my numbers out of that. And three weeks after injury, I got back on uh, the machine. Prior to injury, I was a 12.6 deficit side to side. And so, you know, there still was something there, but that is likely an adaptation to the sports I've played in the past and just how I've trained, nothing wrong. After injury, I went down to a six or a 71.4% deficit initially. So in instances like that, I had kicked out 205.4 pounds prior to injury and 68 afterwards. Wow. So you're talking a large change in ability to produce force. In instances like that, I would argue that symmetry needs to be addressed. And once again, we're not 
striving for Vitruvian man here. We're, we're striving to try and get those limb symmetry indexes as close to possible or as close to even as possible. So I guess, do we know without some sort of history of injury or surgery, if there's a particular index that increases risk of injury, like going like prospectively, is that something we know? Nope. It's never been established out of it. Yeah. Cause I think what some people might erroneously take away from this is like, Hey, limb asymmetry is a thing. And it may be if we get it close Therefore, we're having to measure it regularly in people who don't necessarily have any either injury or surgical history or whatever. Um, then, if we can get it get it closer, then we can reduce the risk of injury. And you're saying we don't we don't think that's necessarily the case. No, you certainly don't need to be. This isn't a risk reduction unless you've had prior injury that would really lead you down any kind of road to check on it. And these are things. It's still. Part of the issue with the symmetry argument and part of why I wanted to take on this piece as a review is the argument is often you can't do things until you hit a certain index. And the problem is it tends to strip it down to where the athlete is not doing much of anything and thus becoming undertrained. So now we have the issue of whatever strength deficit we were talking about, plus the fact that they're not training at the same bolus they were prior to injury. So a lot of times if we're going to address this, like in terms of a power lifter, odds are you will still be squatting, benching, and deadlifting after a short span of time. But there may be some additional work on the end in which we're trying to focus on some like focal work on increasing strength in a certain area, whether it be a quadriceps or an adductor or hamstring. Hmm. Interesting. I like it. Uh, so the last question I'll ask you here has to do with um, – how you would evaluate somebody. We, we talked about this a little bit earlier and uh, I'll, I'll give my feedback first. And I was just, we'll take the people through this more practical sort of example. So let's say you have somebody with, cause I think this actually applies to, to most, most folks. Well, you have somebody who's squatting and they have this gnarly hip shift to the right on the way up on the concentric portion of the squat. They have no history of surgery, no acute injuries. They're doing just fine. Um, and, but they're like, either they send you a video and they're like, what do, <laughs> or you're seeing them in person. So my, my approach is one, make sure that their stance is actually relatively symmetrical, me- meaning that one foot's not like duck footed all the way out and the other one's particularly straight or, you know, one side is su- substantially wider from center than the other and that they're actually standing relatively square in the rack or to the stands or whatever to make sure that, you know, and the bar is centered on their back reasonably you know you need to bring out a, a ruler or anything and market mark stuff but just make sure you're eliminating any of the low-hanging fruit there so to speak um and then if that doesn't fix it the next thing i would do is l- reduce the weight to see if we can move uh without that sort of shift just indicating to me that there's some like sort of you know either neurological pattern that's been ingrained or built that sort of allows them to produce force at a, at a you know, higher level. And we can get out of that by kind of reducing the load and making the exercise still challenging, either by adding like a pause, tempo, something like that, uh, with a lower load and, and kind of working back up. That's, that's my approach to that situation. Is there anything you would do differently there? Um, I likely would be predisposed, and once again, this is all athlete contingent, um, to do something like have them perform a set of split squats to RPE8 on each leg just to see if there was some kind of like 
big difference side to side. And there, like if you run that with 50 pound dumbbells and you're getting 15 reps on one side and six on the other, I, I might dig into that a little bit more. Sure. I think my programming modification or, you know, thing would be to include, as I'd like to do, at least one unilateral lower extremity exercise. Um, just because I feel like even if I saw the difference, I don't know that I would like, I don't know how far down the rabbit hole I would go depending, you know, unless there was a, some, some issue, but you know, that's why you and I are different and I like your approach as well. And well, I, but I also think some of it is the frame through which we tend to get athletes. Oh, in. sure. Yeah. So yeah. Nobody's like, coming to see you. Yeah. like, Hey, I'm totally fine. And yeah. uh, just, you know, want to watch me squat. <laughs> yeah. That's so yeah. Odds are, if you're coming to me, there's some type of issue that you want to address out of the gate. And so it's probably just higher on my radar. And even to your point, there are numerous times where just like, dude, keep doing what you're doing. Yep. It's just, you know, especially I, I've, I feel like the problem is that it gets reduced down to symmetry doesn't matter. Or symmetry absolutely matters. And symmetry should never be the absolute stop to you training. It may be the rate limiting step in some small regards. Like if we have, if we're returning from an adductor surgery and you're still at a 40% limb symmetry index, odds are we're not going to be squatting at RPE nine yet. Sure. And, yep. and so it, it's things like that that will contribute to clearance for progressions into heavier weight, higher RPE, or in, in the instance, we have a lot of literature, high speed running. Yep. Yep. And, or like in sports that involve high speed running just yeah. as a general rule. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing I, I would say, uh, if somebody's new, like to resistance training and they have like a wonky, like wonky technique, like a shift, I bench press and it's crooked or I squat and it's kind of crooked. I, it, the asymmetry thing drops even lower on my radar o only, you know, again, assuming no injury or like significant injury history or surgical history. Um, just because people like their motor learning, like I feel like it's going to self-organize going forward it's just going to get better. And some people are like, should I stop benching or should I start doing one arm dumbbell benching? I'm like, I mean, if you prefer the one arm dumbbell bench, like it's fine to incorporate, we can figure out a way to work it in. But like, I don't know that you need to do that because I think it's likely just that you're going to get better by just continuing to train. So yeah. Interesting. To your point, you, you actually clarified it even better earlier because it, you know, you are doing things that are, or unilateral. So you're still addressing it from multiple angles. And that really does come into some of the motor learning thing as well. Like you want to groove whatever pattern. And that of course is going to get better with repetition, but the more variability you can add into the system via some other exercises, it tends to be the, the broader scope of capacity is. Yep. Yep. We talk about that quite a bit in our beginner prescription and at home exercise template and all the stuff we put out because we like exercise variety. Derek, thank you for this month's contribution to the Barbell Medicine Research Review. We'll catch you next time, man. Yes, sir. Have a good one. Hi, my name is Michael Ray. I'm a chiropractor in Harrisonburg, Virginia. I'm also a Barbell Medicine Pain and Rehab Remote uh, Clinician. Last but not least on this month of April, the Barbell Medicine Research Review is Dr. Michael Ray. You decided to focus on resistance training in RA or rheumatoid arthritis. So how did you come up with this? Like what was the impetus for writing this article? 
Yeah, so I knew that our theme for the month was hypertrophy. And so I was trying to look at something that was a little more clinically related. And uh, quite honestly, I assumed Alston was going to write on sarcopenia. So I was like, well, I'll just like not go into that, uh, that topic. And then so I was looking at like, what do we have kind of some evidence on resistance training for a clinical population? And I had already written previously on uh, axial spondyloarthropathies in a prior month for BMR. So RA seemed like a good, good one to look at. Also seems like a population that's often like forgotten about in regards to recommending resistance training. Right. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure you'll get into the reasons why, but uh, for the listeners at home, can you define what is rheumatoid arthritis? What is RA? Yeah. So um, as far as like from a pathophysiological standpoint, it's chronic inflammation that affects the synovial membranes of joints and oftentimes can lead to kind of degradation or of uh, articulating bones. So chronic inflammation, people usually present with like uh, morning stiffness and symptoms lasting longer than 30 minutes, pain with activity, as well as with rest, joint inflammation, typically symmetrically and bilaterally. So say both knees. And usually in that regard, like it's noticeable, it's tender to the touch, redness, kind of all the cardinal signs of inflammatory response. Um, and then usually you'll do x-rays uh, and find things like, especially in the hands, like the hands and the wrists. And then it can start affecting other joints like the cervical spine and like the atlantodental uh, space, stuff like that. So it can, it, it can affect a lot of different joints and it's typically symmetrical. And then oftentimes why it's important as far as it goes to hypertrophy is because it can lead to loss of function over time. So the idea would be what sort of impact does resistance training have on the disease process itself? So like, does it actually oh, yeah. improve symptoms of RA itself and or any other uh, health uh, uh, potential outcomes um, that it might uh, impact that are unique to RA? Yeah. So um, as far as resistance training specifically, um, I kind of went back through some of the literature and talk about that from prior like systematic reviews that we have for uh, one in particular, I'm thinking of from 2012. And then it's also, it is recommended by a lot of, uh, uh, I guess the best word would be kind of uh, experts in the field from like uh, guidelines, recommendations for clinical practice guidelines for intervening. I think it's important to say like the first uh, intervention for, for this patient population is, is medication management. Things like um, uh, methotrexate is usually recommended in glucocorticoids. And so like that is supposed to occur for them typically. And then um, resistance training is kind of looked at as an additional recommendation uh, that should be given to these, to these folks. And so we do see even from prior data that it does tend to be very impactful from a physical functioning and staving off a disability for this population. But from the clinical side, there seems to be a lot of apprehension and making recommendations for resistance training for various reasons. Yeah. What do you think is the deal there? Um, like, why do you, I mean, I know it, from my own experience um, in the clinic and, 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 you know, in medical training, and then also now, um, interacting with more and more coaches, a lot of people with RA and the same, similarly with like osteoarthritis or other, um, you know, musculoskeletal, or as the Aussies would say, musculoskeletal conditions, uh, they tend to get this narrative put in their head, this idea put in their head that like the disease process that they have makes their joints and bones and them fragile or not quite right not quite able to tolerate, you know, anything that's potentially stressful. 
because that'll lead to either increased symptomology or something bad. So for example, when like uh, people describe osteoarthritis as like wear and tear on the joints, that idea means that your joints are like, you know, degraded and problematic and, you know, fragile. And so then when you, after that, when people say, well, what do I do about it? And you're like, oh, you should exercise and that should include resistance training. They're like, wait, what? You want me to put additional load on there? I mean, do you see yeah. that a, a lot? I mean, I, that's been my experience uh, in RA and similar conditions uh, or related or, or other mes- musculoskeletal conditions. Do we see any reports of that in the evidence or do we see other sort of barriers to, to exercise? Yeah, it, it's not only from like the clinical standpoint, but just RA patients themselves uh, tend to be pretty apprehensive about this stuff, thinking that, well, I've already got, you know, quote unquote, compromised joints. Why would I want to put additional load through them? And what tends to be like what's seen in the evidence is that may actually be working against them because we have decreased function over time, which leads to things like low muscle density and increased, you know, fat mass adiposity. And that leads to further decline in function. And it's kind of this uh, almost uh, symbiotic sort of relationship where they they feed onto each other. So decrease function, body mass alterations, and they keep kind of having this feedback loop because of it. And so it's actually detrimental. Uh, we're seeing like worse outcomes will be occurred because, incurred because they're not being physically active. So if we can kind of re-educate both patients and clinicians like, hey, it's okay to be physically active and, and actually... We want you to go in resistance training because it's going to help with uh, the the disease activity as well as keeping you physically functioning and acting uh, active and probably also giving you confidence over time and your ability to be active and to load your joints while diminishing those fears that that they may have. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple good lines of evidence there. So one with respect to like the disease itself. So we think, you know, it's, it's an inflammatory condition, um, lots of uh, data uh, on there suggesting that the inflammatory uh, modifications that occur secondary to exercise can be beneficial, particularly in RA. Uh, and and then in addition, the actual like sort of functional uh, sort of outcomes. So the ability to like complete activities of daily life or, you know, whatever sort of recreational pursuits that somebody wants to have, obviously all improve with increased physical activity. And then as far, as far as preventing like future risks, you know, f- from people with this condition, uh, you know, carry more muscle mass, having more function, having greater degree of physiological reserve, all, all put this person who's, you know, now immunocompromised secondary to the medication that they're on at a better, in a better spot. And in, in addition to that counteracts some of the anabolic resistance that goes on from those, those agents. So like yeah. there's a huge reason to want to get these folks, to resistance train. Do we have any data on like how many of them are actually engaging in regular physical activities or that have been studied at all? I didn't look at that specifically in this one. Um, that probably is something that could be looked into. I'd be skeptical that we'd have a ton of data on it just because like the study I um, looked at this month, it only had 107 participants, like fairly common to see small sample sizes in, in these types of studies. Um, and, and more to your point, like I wasn't when I heard when I hear cachexia previously, I often thought of cancer related kind of mm-hmm. wasting and hadn't thought of rheumatic uh, cachexia being a thing. And then I came across that in the literature and I started talking to Austin about this because um, I've heard him talk about it previously in other contexts. And I was like, how we kind of 
we're talking about how this happens because you also typically see like loss of appetite in these people as well, which is going to further lead to loss of, of mass. And then talking about anabolic resistance, as you mentioned, like it's all the more reason to say we should be supplementing with resistance training to help mitigate some really bad things that can happen in these cases. Yeah. Take your iron to prevent like bad outcomes from happening in addition to like improving your current state of health. That's right. like, how do we package that into a pill? That's what we need is an exercise mimetic just that just, you know, makes you jacked and improves your cardiorespiratory fitness. And, you know, and in addition to all the uh, self-efficacy. So that's the other thing that people are like, that are missing on the exercise mimetic boat. They're like, yeah, you just pick, make a pill, right? It's like, yeah, that'd be one thing. But, you know, then after that, you need to figure out a way to like improve somebody's self-efficacy their, yeah. you know, all that other sort of stuff too, because that's a big part, particularly with pain, for example. So, um, interesting. All right. So this study, what was their like, what would sort of outcomes were they looking at here? So there's a couple of things. I mean, they looked at a lot of outcomes. There's, there's no need for us to go through all of them. It's in the article. Um, but it, it's a, a ton of stuff. But the original premise was the prior data looking at exercise, um, or not exercise, but looking at these outcomes in the, the uh, rheumatoid arthritis population, we started seeing uh, low muscle density uh, being linked to physical functioning. But all of the studies that were looked at thus far were cross-sectional. So it's hard to look at temporality and see how confident should we be in our causal statements about, well, low muscle density is leading to loss of function. And so they try to overcome things like reverse causality by looking at things longitudinally to see how strong is this relationship. And that was kind of the premise of, of the whole study. So they're specifically concerned with low muscle density and then looking at how does low muscle density compare, if at all, if it is there in the, the rheumatic population, how does that compare to quote unquote healthy people? So they look at things like Z-scores for that. And they try to see, you know, in addition to low muscle density, they measure physical functioning with some battery of tests as well as self-reported. They also look at strength outcomes. So they do uh, biodex and dynamometers. Um, look at hand grip strength as well. They look at um, just like a ton of different outcomes with this stuff. And they kind of track these people initially. And then they do follow ups with a mean follow up time of around three years to see like, how are things changing in order for it to be a, a longitudinal study and speak confidently about muscle density changes being related to physical functioning and strength. And so like the big ones that seem to be related was uh, higher disease activity, obviously. And then uh, smoking seemed highly prevalent and then as well as being female seemed to be all pre very predictive of having lower muscle density and then lower muscle density leading to decreased physical functioning. Um, strength outcomes, which we can talk about if we want, didn't actually change a whole lot, oddly. Um, the other big one would be increased fat mass, uh, increased adiposity seemed heavily linked as well as being predictive for worse outcomes. Worse outcomes. Yeah. I'd be curious to know about the actual, like the physical activity that was being done, you know, just because this stuff tends to be really underdosed in addition to be underutilized. So yeah. it's kind of like, oh, they didn't get stronger. So I'm like, okay, were they all just really well trained beforehand? Like, which seems unlikely. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or was the intervention just not that great? There's actually a study, this is unrelated to RA, but just reminded me, it was a year long bench press intervention in elderly women. Year, one year. And they, no, no joke, they tested the 1RM bench press in these elderly women before and after this one year. And the improvement was one kilogram. Oh. One, I, I know. And I'm thinking, I'm like, how? That doesn't make sense. Like, how did you design it? Either a training, a testing, a training or testing protocol, or a group of individuals 
who were so not responsive to training that one kilo was the improvement. Yeah, over a year. Is, this wasn't, I haven't read the lift more in a while. I read it when it first came out. This wasn't lift more, was it? No, 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 no. Yeah. That, but, okay. that, <laughs> I was like, wait, <laughs> wait, wait, it could be the same. No, yeah. no. Um, cool. All right. So, uh, give the listeners at home a takeaway from your research review this month. Cause they'll have to, you, you got 16 pages of nuance here yeah. and I want people to understand <laughs> like there's a lot in here. And if you want to stay up to date on this stuff and it's particularly if you want it through a clinically, uh, relevant sort of lens, this is the research review you need to pick up. Um, yeah. What was, what's a take home that you want to give the people at home? So broadly speaking, yes, uh, low muscle density does appear linked to decreased physical uh, functioning uh, as well as uh, disability. And so the big predictors, like I was saying, is it's going to be, you know, um, uh, higher disease activity, uh, lower muscle density at baseline measurement. So when they originally started the longitudinal study, as well as being female and as well as being smoking, uh, like, and obviously some of those are non-modifiable versus modifiable, but the modifiable ones are the higher fat mass index that was found, the higher adiposity, the lower muscle density, the decreased physical functioning. We can, as clinicians, absolutely, and as well as like strength and conditioning coaches, intervene on that and get people to start engaging in more physical activity. Now, uh, a conversation also that I had when I was writing this was, you know, uh, the question becomes, is national physical activity guidelines enough? And I don't know that I would be comfortable leaving it there for this population, specifically for the things we mentioned, like anabolic resistance. They may need higher volume over time uh, for, for this population to help overcome anabolic resistance. So I think if you have an RA patient in front of you and they're obviously already getting the medical medication management they need and you're talking about physical activity, it's not going to be enough to just throw at them, go to these national physical activity guidelines, but it may be a great initial step, identifying barriers and facilitators to getting them to meet those guidelines and then doing more as they adapt to that, because I think they're probably going to need it specifically for this population. And then it kind of goes through, because uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this, there are, there are obvious methodological concerns with uh, oftentimes just exercise research in general, but specifically when we start looking at it in clinical populations, so like small sample sizes, short duration for follow-up, so on and so forth. So I kind of discussed like maybe that could also be a confounder in the data and why we don't see larger effects and in, in exercise interventions for these types of populations. Yep. Sage advice on the getting folks to increase their physical activity above the recommended minimums. So we want you to at least meet that or ex and ideally exceed that as your exercise tolerance improves because there's this dose-dependent relationship between uh, training volume and health, health improvement potential. So, you know, get to moving. Right. Uh, Mike, thanks for joining us on this April edition of the Barbell Medicine Research Review. We'll catch you next month, man. Yeah, thanks, Jordan. 